Welcome to the People's School for Marxist Leninist Studies, Thursday, October 22nd. The year is 2020. Talking about the year being 2020, the book tonight is a continuation of a discussion of a year that's very important to all communists on the planet, and that is the year 1917. What happened in the Tsarist Empire at the time, the first workers and the first peasants uprising that succeeded. Before that time, the last time that succeeded was at the Paris Commune, almost 100 years before then, or less, about 60, 70 years. And that lasted 70 days. The one that we're talking about was the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, the one in October or November, depending on the calendar you use. And the book we're doing is 10 Days That Shook the World. The author is John Reed. John Reed was a journalist who went and covered events when he covered the uprising, the revolution in Mexico, uh, the earlier one. And then he went to Russia, and he's been doing that. And he became a leader of the Communist Party. He became very enamored with what he saw. So I'm going to read to you a tribute to John Reed in 1940, 1940, October 1940, okay, before the Soviet Union was invaded. I believe they were invaded in June or July of 41. This was way before. And this is from a book called Communism and Culture, and it's written by General Secretary of the Party, Earl Browder. We named a club in Kansas and Missouri after Comrade Browder. And this was written in 1940. A tribute to John Reed. John Reed won immortality by his report of the first socialist revolution, the founding of Soviet power, in his book, Ten Days That Shook the World. It is not the peerless and inspired reporter, however, but the partisan of a cause who won the heart of his generation and whose name came to symbolize the movement of the best representatives of the American intellectual world at the time in their breakaway from the old, decaying world order of capitalism, their personal espouser of a new socialist order. It is in the role of passionate partisan of socialism, in the role of struggle for socialism, that the memory of Comrade John Reed waxes with the passing years. He was a great pioneer on the frontier between the old and between the new social systems. The death struggle between both, which dominates, continues to this day. An understanding a penetration study of Comrade Reed's life, which will bring out in bold relief his lasting significance as a historical figure. That still has to be written. He was born and bred in the tradition of privileged classes. He had further the advantage of talent and personality to open for him the doors of all the bourgeois world had to offer at the time. But long before he was conscious of any of that, he was in revolt against the inner emptiness of his world at the time. More and more, Reed became a seeker for something unknown, something to fulfill the emptiness which he had in his soul from his world. 
with all his education and his experience, it had left in him an emptiness. Reed found what he was seeking in Petrograd, Russia, in the days of October and November of 1917, when the Soviet government was established, when the first socialist revolution began. He found it in the party of Comrade Lenin, the Bolsheviks, the communists, which guided that revolution. From the revolution and the party of Lenin, which guided it, Reed acquired a faith and an understanding which gave meaning and dignity to life, which transformed the seeking adolescent into the adult man. He immediately identified himself wholly with the revolution, with socialism, with the party of Lenin. He became the passionate partisan of a great cause. He had found himself in something so big that in it he could completely lose himself. He could merge himself in it. He had found the road away from decay, the road away from death. He found a way towards growth and life, away from the old that had poisoned him and his generation. He found a way into the new life of affirmation, of belief, of unlimited perspective of the future. That experience which John Reed shared with only a minority of his generation of Americans at the time is the experience through which the whole generation of today is now going through. Today, however, the young generation stands on the shoulders of the generation of people like John Reed. He could only see the birth of the new order of socialism. The present generation celebrates the glorious achievements of years of Soviet power. He had time only for the intuitive grasp of a great vision that Lenin had. The present generation has deeply absorbed the teachings and the examples of Lenin's giant successor, Comrade Stalin. October 20th, 1940. So I'm gonna open up for any questions. What motivated Browder to write this in 1940? Okay, that's a good question. There was an upsurge in the party membership in 1940. Remember, we went through periods before that. We went through a very, what I would call, growing pains. We went through growing pains, we the party did. We're still going through growing pains. We shed the skin, like a snake does, of the old when this party was formed. That's another reaffirmation of how we changed with the conditions. The old party, when it no longer served the purpose for the working class, because it changed this ideology, there was a need for a new party. And if it wasn't us, it would have been somebody else that did this. So 1940 was a period when the party was on the upswing. It was during what we call the popular front period. Our membership grew way, way over. Our influence grew to the point where, as Comrade Gus Hall told me once, you take a pebble and you throw it on the top of the surface of a lake and it has ripples. The pebble may sink at one point, but the ripples keep on going. And I remember that analogy that he told me. And the ripples keep on going, and that's the ripples that 
the effect of the party. You'll hear from some ripple. Something affected you to make you take that first step. He wrote it in 1940 because the party was in a popular front period, and we grew, and a whole slew of young people came in, and that's why he wrote it then. I want to just mention what Marx said about history. He said, the revolutionary movement goes through ebbs for the working class, goes through ebbs and flows. And he gave as the example the water of the ocean coming onto the beach. And at certain point, the tide changes, and the water comes up much closer to the middle of the beach, and at a certain point, it ebbs, goes back. And as it goes forward and back, that is the revolutionary movement. So we go through ebbs and flows. And right now, we're at a different period than we were in 1990. Socialism was on the ascendancy, but it was starting to have cracks in it throughout the 80s in Poland and things like that. But remember, in 1917, when the revolution stopped, they took one-sixth of the globe with them. The globe is cut out. There's a cartoon I saw from Robert Miner of a worker holding a section of the globe, one-sixth. That's at one shot. By the time 1945 came along, and 1946, it was a much larger portion in our camp. By the time 50 came along, we had China, we had Korea. By the time the 70s came along, we had Vietnam, we had Cuba. And by the time the 80s came along, there were revolutionary movements going on in Latin America, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, in Africa, and in other parts of Asia. And it's never the same, it's never perfect, but it is part of our movement. Remember, they overthrew the monarchy in Nepal, N-E-P-A-L, or about 15 years ago, I think it was. So we have ebbs and flows. We had losses and we had gains. But remember that that's normal. So that nobody should be upset about it. Originally, I was upset until I came across the quote by Marx. And I felt much better about it. I'm going to go now to the book. I'm going to read this on 32. This is John Reed reading. Looking back Russia at Russia before the November insurrection. Notice what he calls it. He called it an insurrection. Seems of another time, another age, at a time when the society was almost incredibly conservative. So quickly did we adapt ourselves to the new situation, to the quickness of life, just as Russian politics swung boldly to the left until the cadets, which were proponents of capitalism, were outlawed as, quote, enemies of the people. Kerensky then became a counter-revolutionary. So what was true a few months before was changing. The society was going to the left very quickly. The so-called middle socialist leaders, what we would call social democrats, were too reactionary later on for their following. And even Maxim Gorky belonged to the right wing as time went on. About the middle of December 1917, which is only a few weeks later, a group of social revolutionaries paid a private visit to Sir George Buchanan. He was the British ambassador at the time to the government in Russia. And they implored him not to mention the fact that they had been there. Don't even tell anybody we're here talking to you. Because they were, quote, considered too much to the right. And to think 
wrote Sir George, one year ago, the English government instructed me not to receive the Kerensky government because they were too left, exclamation point. So what Reed is saying reminds me of what Lenin said. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Read some of the things that were going on socially. At the front, remember, there was a war going on until the Bolsheviks won and ended that war. At the front, the soldiers fought out their fight with their officers, and they learned self-government through their soldiers' committees that were sent up. In the factories, those unique Russian organizations called the factory shop committees gained experience, and they gained strength and a realization of their historical mission by combat with the old order. All Russia was learning to read, and all Russia was reading politics, economics, history, because the people wanted to know. In every city, in most towns, along the front, each political faction had its own newspaper. Sometimes they had several newspapers. Hundreds of thousands of pamphlets were distributed by thousands of organizations and poured into the army, into the village, into the factories, and into the streets. The thirst for education, so long thwarted and prevented, burst with the revolution into a frenzy of expression. From the Smolny Institute alone, the first six months went out every day. Tons, listen to this, trainloads of literature saturating the land. Russia absorbed reading matter like it was hot sand drinking water. Can you believe the way he worded it? Insatiable. And it was not fables. It was not falsified history. It was not diluted religion. And it was not cheap fiction that corrupts. But social and economic theories, philosophy, the works of Tolstoy and Corky. Interesting, because I keep thinking of our comrades today talk about agitation propaganda. And on the last of their agenda is the written propaganda to get out to the masses, as if everyone has a computer in their pocket. And, of course, it's mostly the young who do have that. But we should not write off those people in their 50s and upward who don't have access for economic or other reasons, to computers. So we need the written word. That's what I got out of that. Anybody want to say anything what we just read? This made me think of sort of strains of leftist thoughts where people, they don't think that the masses can really or are willing to engage with theory, philosophy, economics, or anything like that. Uh, this just really shows that that's a very historically uninformed position and really... When people see the value in it, when they see how these political theories can shape their lives for the better, like people want to read it. They want to read it really bad. So much so that I've heard that in Russia at the time, sometimes peasants would get together and hire like, somebody to read it to them. 
because they themselves couldn't read it, but that's how badly they wanted to know this knowledge. I think that looking at the lessons of how dangerous status quo leftism can be, when we look at the revisionist liberation movements in Africa, the MPLN, Angola, SWAPO, and Namibia, and look at how this, a lot of the socialist parties, like in France and even DSA in America, a lot of them will literally run into the feet of the status quo just to get incremental change. And then when they get power, they do absolutely nothing. Like, they're indistinguishable to liberals. So I think it's great to learn how Lenin handled the socialist revolutionaries. If we're ever to have, like, a leftist movement in America, whether electoral revolutionary or armed, we have to look at Lenin's example. Yeah, my question is, I know that this book was banned in the Soviet Union for a time under Stalin, and I didn't know if uh, Angela knew any more about that. No, I never heard that. This is the first I'm hearing about it. Is there anybody in the phone who could answer that? I never heard that in my life. Uh, this is one of the things with the Internet, Angelo. Oh. Just like there's a, a website called the Marxist.org, but really it's the Trotskyist website. The same thing happens like on Wikipedia. You, you can't trust what you're reading on the Internet. You can't really trust what you're reading in a book either. It's up to you to think critically. That website, Marxist.org, they even go to the point where they'll, they'll omit portions of the original books. They'll change things. That's why we always try to promote no, the, and uh, I don't the, believe that is correct at all. I do not believe that at all. It makes no logical sense why a book that mentions Stalin in a positive way is going to be banned in the Soviet Union. And I know mm-hmm. it wasn't. I know it was there because I saw it there when I was living there during the Brezhnev period. They had it on all the bookshelves, and they sold books on the streets like it was bread. So I don't believe that at all. So whoever, you know, sows the seeds like that, be wary of them. So I have that book uh, with an now introduction by, by A.J.P. Taylor, and it does, he, his last paragraph in his introduction does state that. I'm Did sorry. you find uh, out who this Taylor was? I never heard of him. He must no, be a no. bourgeois historiographer. So what do you expect from them? They get paid by universities to write books, and they live off that salary. And they live very comfortably, academia. Nothing that they say should really be trusted. The few people I know who are not bourgeois historians who write history tend to be poor. That's my experience with them. In this introduction, he criticizes Reed, says a lot of stuff that Reed was naive. He praises Trotsky, just a bunch of stuff. So, it so uh, need I say more? So I'm going to end this with biography of John Reed, determined to become a journalist, and he did do that. And he had an interest in social problems and society. That's what brought him to the, to the left, the socialist movement. And he was first arrested in Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson, New Jersey was an industrial town in 1913. He spoke on behalf of the strikers in New Jersey. Many of them were foreign-born many of them from Italian background. The harsh treatment that the authorities gave to the strikers and a short jail term that Reed served made him more radical, not less. He allied with the syndicalist trade unions, the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World. Like many people, they go from one left trend to another as they developed. He was sent to Mexico in 1913, where he shared the perils of Pancho Villa. If anybody doesn't know who he is, 
Pancho Villa's army was an army of insurrection against the government there. It defeated the federal forces in Mexico, and they went into Mexico City. Reed was there reporting on them. When the U.S. Communist Party and the Communist Labor Party, those were the two parties that were formed, and they split in 1919. One of them was based on the native-born people born here. The other was based on the foreign-born, the Russians, the Italians, the Germans. Those were born in other countries who came here. So those were the two parties we had. Reed became the leader of the latter party. He was indicted for treason by the American government, and so therefore he escaped to the Soviet Union. And that's where he died at the end of typhus. He was subsequently buried at the Kremlin Wall with other heroes of the Bolshevik movement. Following his death, the Communist Party formed what we called John Reed Clubs, associations of writers and artists in the United States, to honor him. I just want to mention he signed something called The Traitor's War, T-R-A-D, like a dog, E-R-S, published in 1914, and he published it in a magazine called The Masses. The Masses was a left-wing, because there was no communists in 1914, was a left-wing pro-socialist intellectual magazine. The name was The Mass. And he said in that, the real war, talking about World War I, of which the sudden outburst of death and the sudden outburst of destruction is only an incident, began long ago. It has been raging for tens of years, but its battles have been so little advertised that they have been hardly noted. It is a clash of traitors. What has democracy to do in alliance with the Tsar of Russia? Is it liberalism, which is marching from the Petersburg of Father Gavan? Father Gavan was one of the leaders of the first revolution in 1905. No, there was a falling out among commercial rivals, arguments between the different capitalist countries. We who are socialists must hope, we must even expect that out of this horror of war, of bloodshed, and dire destruction, out of this will come far-reaching social changes and a long step forward towards our goal of peace among men. But we must not be duped by this editorial nonsense about liberalism going forth to a holy war against tyranny. This is not our way. So he's criticizing liberalism and saying that it's more of a class war. And so I'm going to end it there. Any questions? So I was wondering in what capacity did they simplest, efficient versions of these things that were still compelling enough to, you know, agitate these people? Oh, I could answer that easily. And I got it from seeing the movie Red. That movie taught me a lot. And there's a section of the movie, comrades, it's really fascinating. It shows how they brought the revolution to the parts of Russia that were areas what we call Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, those areas. And it showed how they did it. And they did it by using things that people were similar, were used to. So they were heavily Muslim areas. And they brought from Moscow buses and trucks that had on the side. It's interesting what I'm going to tell you now. They talked about the zihad. They used that term. 
to show that socialism was going to bring what is better for the people. And they used that term. They closed it in this resting of what Muslims could understand. And they gained millions of followers in those previously religious publics. You have to go where the people are at. If you read early Mao, and even middle Mao, he talks about being like a fish in the ocean with other fishes. So we have to blend in. That's the thing. And if we can blend in where the people are at, that's the way to do successful propaganda. We don't go to them with pictures of muscular Soviet workers holding red banners of Comrade Stalin. That's not going to do anything. We have to go to where they're at and present it in that way. And that's why I believe the party grew during the popular front period in the late 30s and 40s. It took on the mantle of American history and American heroes, and it presented it in a communist way. It's often you know, understood that the Russian Revolution is you know, an important period in socialist history. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's an important event in human history, in history of civilization, because it uh, represents a step beyond an advancement in the productive forces that had not yet been realized. I don't think people take that into consideration as much as we should. It's often looked at as the Russian Revolution is just this little thing that just a small sect of the population celebrates, when really it's an all-encompassing understanding that this was an advancement in human history and in society. I'd like to add to that. This is a time to read and learn. Comrade, everybody should be reading and learning. You should be excited. This should be an exciting point in your life. You realize I've been doing this for 60 years when I was 13. I'm just as excited tonight on October 22nd, 2020, as I was in 1961 when I first got involved with this movement. I'm just as excited. And it kept me learning, learning, wanting to learn more and more and more. The famous book, which we all should be having, is Joseph Comrade Joseph Stalin's book. Foundations of Leninism, that in his preface to his book, he says, some people look at Lenin as strictly connected with Russia and part of Russian phenomenon. We look at Lenin as representing the march of humanity towards a different world order. And that separates us from the revisionist. The revisionists look at Lenin as a great person in Russian history, and that's it. No connection to our country. No connection to our struggles here. And that's what's famous about the old Communist Party. They hold that view. They don't see no connection between Stalin, Mao, Lenin. The only one they talk about is Marx, because Marx had no connection with the first socialist revolution. I just want to add on this being an important part of human history and not just Russian history. You look at that time period when the Soviet Union was formed and they gave voting rights to everyone. They gave rights to the workers and suddenly you see this reaction in the imperialist powers and you get workers' rights and voting rights for women in, in, in even America. This ripple effect that we talked about earlier, the Soviet Union comes and starts uplifting the people, the workers. And suddenly, all of the imperialist powers also have to go and follow suit, or else they risk revolution themselves. Thank you, and, and I want to appreciate everybody for coming on tonight.